I'm convinced of something. The longer and longer I'm alive, which isn't that long so far, but, uh, but I'm convinced of something. The longer I'm here on this earth, which is that all of us, you and I, we're, we're in a battle. There is, there is a battle. There is a war going on in our lives. And some people don't know it, and they're getting trounced. Other people know it, and yet they seem to just kind of surrender to it and say, well, it's inevitable that I'm going to lose. But what really gets me is when followers of Jesus, who I think know that they're in a battle, and actually do have the resources, I believe, to overcome, nevertheless seem to live and act in ways and think in ways that actually seem to help the opponent, <laughs> that actually be playing for the, the enemy. I don't know if you've watched uh, Field of Dreams. It's one of my, I, I think it's a great sports movie. Kevin Costner back in the day. And uh, the, the, the theme song for that movie is still like my Saturday night sermon prep soundtrack. It's just like, if you don't get shivers down your spine listening to that, you're not human, okay? So I listened to this and, and I love Field of Dreams. And, and one of the stories that kind of inspired that was, uh, was the Black Sox scandal of 1919, where a bunch of Chicago White Sox baseball players took a bribe from some gamblers to throw the World Series. So without their teammates knowing it, they were playing in a way that enabled their opponents, the Cincinnati Reds, to win the championship instead of them. I think that's kind of knowingly or unknowingly, the situation for, for a lot of us believers, those of us who are, that we're actually, we're, we're actually th- throwing the game. And it's really crucial that we understand, first of all, who, the, who it is that we're fighting against, who it is that our opponent, who, who our opponent is. It's not, a, it's not a government, and it's not a human being. It, uh, it is, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, something very different. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. You're like, whoa, I didn't know that. That's what Paul, that's what Paul says is true. Our battle is not against what is seen, but against what is unseen. And actually, that's, that's really the heart of the book of Revelation. If you were with us last week, that the book of Revelation is all about showing us what's, what's unseen and yet nevertheless is very real. What's going on behind the scenes of history. And Revelation 12 shows us this picture of a dragon. And this, this dragon is also called the serpent or Satan or the devil. And the dragon has these grotesque heads with crowns on them, which means that he uses human authority. You, you might see real oppression and real persecution in the world, but, but in the, in the, in behind the scenes, it's, it's just the dragon pushing this, trying to destroy what, what God loves, because this is what he does. He deceives, he accuses, he condemns, he, he, he destroys. And in Revelation 12, we, we, we read about this dragon that wanted to devour a child that was about to be born. And we said, this is the Christmas event. This is a very unique portrayal of the Christmas event. And if you had been in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, you probably wouldn't have actually seen a dragon lurking around the inn wanting to devour the child. You would have seen something like that. But nevertheless, Revelation tells us that that's, that's what was happening. The dragon wanted to destroy 
the child before, before he could really get to work. And this prompts a war in heaven between Satan and, and his angels, between the dragon and his angels, and Michael, the archangel, and his. There's this battle. And, and in the end, this, the child is born successfully. The child ascends to the throne of God, hurls the, the, the dragon is hurled down. And we said that between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, this is the reality. The dragon has been defeated but not destroyed. And so the dragon's time is short and he's trying to cause as much chaos, as much destruction as he possibly can. And so the war in some ways has moved from heaven to, to earth. There's, there's this war in the wilderness and you and I are part of this. And so that's what we want to talk about today. And we want to talk about how we overcome. So I want to pray for us, Jesus. I, I want to ask that you would speak to us today. That is, as we read... Uh, a passage that might feel confusing and difficult in various ways. We talk about some difficult things. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, move among us. Let, let our hearts be open and soft towards you, that you would show us more of who you are and how you call us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Revelation 12. Like I said, verses 10 to 17, if you have your Bible, open it up. Uh, if not, it'll be on the screen as well. John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Let's be honest, this is a bit trippy, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff here. A woman eagle, eagle woman, whatever you want to call her. And then there's like a serpent slash dragon spewing water and a ground open. It's like, what is going on here, right? Now, there's actually an Old Testament story that is very much in the background to this whole thing. And I, it might, you might miss it at first glance, but I want to, I want to show you how this, how this comes together because it's kind of cool. Um, the story is, is the Exodus and actually more exactly the, the time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness after the Exodus. So the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. God raises up a servant, a leader named Moses, and, uh, and sends these plagues on Egypt, breaks 
the hold of Pharaoh on the Israelites. They, they, they leave, they, they, they're set free. They come to the Red Sea and, uh, and, and the Egyptians go, oh, we actually miss you guys, we want you back. And so they're chasing after the Israelites and God causes the Red Sea to open up. The Israelites walk through, the Egyptians come after them and God causes the waters to, to collapse in on the Egyptians, taking care of them, setting the, the Israelites free for for all from the power of the Egyptians. Now Moses, right afterwards, with his sister Miriam, this is the original brother-sister songwriting duo, they, um, they sing a song. This is the thing about Moses. He was a prince, a military leader, and a songwriter. He makes all of us guys look bad. Just a very well-rounded dude. And he says, this is what they sing, they sing, you stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. This is the way Moses describes the, the event, is that the earth swallows up your enemies. Now they go from there into the wilderness and they, they spend some time there. In fact, uh, after perhaps a couple of years of, of being in the wilderness, they, they have a significant failure at a place called Kadesh Barnea and God says, actually, you're not ready to go to the promised land. You're going to have to be in the wilderness another 40 years. So by some counts, They'd been in the wilderness for a couple of years already, plus another 40. So some say it's actually 42 years total. It certainly is 42 encampments that the book of Numbers lists uh, that, that Israel has in the wilderness. So 42, important number for the wilderness, just so you keep that in your back of your mind, back pocket. They're in the wilderness, and, and this is a place where, where God, uh, God protects them, provides for them, but, it, but it's a place of testing, it's a place of, of testing from the outside because there are, there are people who look at this massive group of Israelites and they want to nip this in the bud. They want to attack. They want to destroy them. There's also temptation from within because there are leaders from within who go, we don't like this. We think we should go back to Egypt. And so there's this temptation to rebel and to revolt and to grumble against Moses and, and against God. And yet God provides for them in the wilderness, miraculously, food and water and so on. He protects them from their enemies. He protects them even from those who would lead them astray. In one story, you might remember this, there's a guy who tries to lead a rebellion and uh, him and his, his co-conspirators are all together and God causes the ground to actually open up and, and swallow them whole, uh, swallowing up enemies again. This whole time in the wilderness, God is preparing the Israelites for the promised land. And he, and he says in Exodus 19, this is how he describes his, his relationship to Israel in the wilderness. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings. Did we see that anywhere before? Maybe. Eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see the connections? No? Yes? Oh, there you go. It's okay for you guys to talk. You can talk in church. You see the connections? You've got the eagle's wings. You've got the, you've got the time in, in, in the wilderness. You've got the ground swallowing up threats. Uh, it, it's not that Revelation 12 uh, is just kind of telling us in an interesting and trippy way about the Exodus. Again, it's, it's actually describing something different. It's, it's describing a new exodus. It, it's, it's telling us there's something going on that's very similar to what happened back there. And if we're to understand this thing over here, we need to first see the connections. So let me, let me pull a few more of those out for you. Let, let's try to figure out what is this new exodus that has somehow been anticipated by the old one. Uh, first, you've got the woman. We said this last week that the woman represents 
the people of God, the continuous people of God from Old Testament to New Testament and, and on. See, the, the, the people of God, the woman, is not defined by ethnicity. It actually never was. It's not a political nation-state called Israel. Paul says in Romans that not all who are part of ethnic Israel are part of true Israel. Because it's always been defined by faith. Do you have faith in God? And now God has revealed himself in Jesus, fully manifested in Jesus. So do you have faith in Jesus? That's how the people of God is defined. That's, that's the woman. And after the child is snatched up to the throne, that's a reference to the ascension of Jesus. After that, the woman is in the wilderness. So we're to take from that, I believe, that we are part of this, this, the people of God represented by the woman and, and that we're in the wilderness after the ascension of Jesus. Now, how long are we here for? Well, uh, in verse 6, it says that the woman was in the wilderness and taken care of for 1,260 days. And I said last week, I'm going to come back to this. And you might have thought, no, he's not. And some of you thought, I don't really care. But here I am making good on what I said I would do. 1,260 days. Here is a math question. You didn't know you were going to do math today at church. But how many months, 30-day months, do you think are in 1,260 days? Anyone want to take a guess? 40, what, wait, what? 42, I have to tell you, 42. It's 42. Okay, 42 months in 1,260 days. Now, there's another description later on in chapter 12 that says that she's taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Now that's a reference to the prophet Daniel. That could take us down a whole other rabbit trail, which would be very interesting. But for now, I'll just say, you've got a time, that's one, times, so plural, you could, could add two to that. So one plus two, three, good job, okay. And then half a time, three and a half. Now how many months, this is an easier one, how many months are in three and a half years? 42, whoa! I think, I've never watched The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or read it, but I think, I think that's actually the answer to the meaning of life, right? I think it's like, four, anyways, 42. So you see this repetition of 42, 42 months. In Revelation 11, one chapter before, we read that for 42 months, the Gentiles are going to trample the outer courts of the temple. There's going to be this attack on something God loves for 42 months. Right after that, we read about two witnesses who bear witness about Jesus for 1,260 days, a period of 42 months. In Revelation 13, we read about a beast who's a tool of the dragon and utters blasphemies for a period of 42 months. It's just like all of this stuff, all this stuff is happening in this 42-month period. Now, here's the thing. Numbers in Revelation are almost always symbolic and almost always connected with the Old Testament. The point isn't a literal 42-month period where a bunch of things happen. The point is to, to symbolize what is taking place behind the scenes. And what's taking place behind the scenes, again, that 42 indicates this is a, this is a wilderness thing. This is like an exodus thing. It's, it's a season where the woman, where the people of God are being, being tested by, by this beast uttering blasphemies, where, where the people of God are called to bear witness, where the people of God are, are experiencing attack and yet are being taken care of. And you see that also in the similarity of circumstances where, think about the exodus. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. The exodus means that they are set free. 
They are no longer slaves. When they're in the wilderness, they are not being ruled by some foreign nation. They're set free. But it's not the goal, is it? It's, it's not where they're wanting to arrive. Because where they want to go, the goal is the promised land. That's where they get their permanent home. That's where they experience the fullness of God's blessings. So the wilderness is kind of this like in-between, between stage one and stage two of salvation, between the promise and the consummation. You see what I mean? Now the Bible talks about Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as being like an exodus. And, and he sets us free. He has won the freedom for us from sin, from the fear of death. So, so there is this freedom, there's this salvation, but it's not, it's not like the, 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 the totality of it. What, what we're aiming for is the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22, it's, it's our forever home where we experience the fullness of God's blessings and see him face to face. That's what we're waiting for. So this time in between is the wilderness, between, between salvation and consummation, between the cross and, and, and the new heavens and the new earth, between the first coming and second coming of Jesus. This is a picture of, of who we are. We are saved, we're delivered, we're being protected and taken care of even as attacks continue to come. I mean, we could say a lot more about that. I, I feel like that, that helps us understand so much about where we find ourselves and what our calling is. But I want to I talk especially today about, about how it is that the dragon or the serpent continues to attack and how we overcome this dynamic in, in the wilderness. Is that okay with you if we do that? That's where we'll focus. All right, so the dragon also now is seen as, as the serpent and he spews water out of his mouth like a, like a flood, a river that, that's trying to sweep the woman away, trying to drown her. Now what are we talking about here? Psalm 144 gives us a clue where uh, we read this prayer, reach down from your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Rescue us from the mighty waters, from deceitful and lying mouths. The, the serpent, the, Satan is known as the father of lies, right? And so it's this stream that comes out of his mouth. It's just deceit. It's just lying. That's what he does. That's like the only thing in his playbook is just wave after wave after wave of misinformation, disinformation, just outright lies. This is what he does. And he does it in a few ways. He does it through our thoughts. And uh, I, I shared a story a few weeks ago about how I experienced this, just this like wave of uh, just, just horrible thoughts about myself and, and how I was about to slide down this slope before I realized what it was. It happened to me again this week. Actually, it happened a bunch of times in various ways. It was a, it was a week with a high degree of spiritual battle this week. And uh, I, I'd been talking to a pastor, and, and he was sharing about some of the way, things that God had been showing him, ways that God had been speaking through him, working through him. Like, oh, that's, that's awesome. That's so good. But after he left, I uh, all of a sudden just was hit with, with this wave of, of, of thoughts. Thoughts like, well, God doesn't, he doesn't speak to me in that way, so God must not really love me. At least not like he loves this other pastor. God doesn't isn't using me quite the same way. So I, I probably shouldn't actually be a pastor 
In fact, it'd probably be better for everybody if, if I wasn't a pastor. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless, useless, and I don't think I'm actually loved at all. It got pretty dark pretty quick. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to believe it, actually. And then all of a sudden I go, wait a minute, Satan, rookie move on your part. I'm reading your playbook right now. I'm preaching Revelation 12. I know, I know what this is. And so you just, I think that's the first thing, by the way, is just recognizing, wait a minute, these aren't like true thoughts that I'm having about myself. This is, this is a stream straight out of the serpent's mouth. And he does this as well through temptation. He does it through those thoughts, but he does it through temptation too. And if, if, you, if you've experienced that battle in your life with sin, with a, a habitual addictive sin even, you know what that wave is like, how, how the serpent kind of goes, look, it's, it's not going to be that bad this time. You'll feel better about yourself if you, if you give in. You know, it's, 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 it's futile to resist. Those kinds of thoughts that just, that just come. This is how he gets us. This is how he tries to drown us. He also does it from within the church through false teaching. Now, this is something that was big in the churches of the first century in Revelation, that you had people in the churches going, you know, there are these things that make it difficult to be a Christian in this world. And if we would just let go of those things, then it would be a lot easier. And so they're telling people, hey, it's okay to compromise. Jesus will understand. He knows it's really hard. Jesus doesn't really agree in Revelation. He kind of goes, well, actually, no, I, if you're lukewarm, I'll have to, I have to spit you out of my mouth. doesn't quite agree with that. But that's the teaching. That's the false teaching. And it's just the serpent trying to lead people astray. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some examples. And I'm going to try to work up from less controversial uh, to a little bit more. And it's not like something I want to do. It's just like, as I was preaching, I'm like, I think God really wants me to highlight some of these things and and name them. But for example, with this, with this kind of urging to compromise, the idea that in Christ alone is salvation, that you actually need Jesus does not sit well in a, in a pluralistic kind of culture where, where anything goes. And so there is, there is some teaching, there's some preaching out there that would have you believe, you, you know, Jesus is one option among others. We need to let go of this exclusivity thing because it makes people hate us. It makes people see us as bigots. It's alluring, but it's a stream from the serpent urging us to compromise. And the serpent deceives through, in the world, through, through worldviews through ideologies. And this is maybe the toughest one to talk about and to speak about because I, I think that the, these floods are so immersive. It's, it's, it's literally the water that, that, well, I don't know if literally is maybe the wrong, I, you know, everybody uses literally, illiter- not, not right. Anyways, it's like the water that we're, that we're swimming in. It's like you ask a fish, how's the water today? And they're like, what, what, is, it, what is water? Because it's just what they're swimming in. And I, I think there are these, these worldviews that the serpent has so successfully uh, used and has reinforced through media and academia and governments and so on that to question it at all is just is just heresy, but, but they're just lies from the serpent. Lies about sex. That it's just a physical act. And that to put any boundaries around it is oppressive. Lies about our bodies. That they're not reliable guides as to whether or not we're male or female. Lies about money. That money is our, our it, it determines our status, our, our joy, our comfort. 
those kinds of things. Again, it's just, it's so tricky. It's so alluring because it's everywhere and it's reinforced everywhere. And yet I, I believe that these are streams from the serpent that he's using to, to drown others. Now the thing in Revelation 12 is, is that God actually opens up a hole in the ground to swallow up that flood. And, and yet what I, what I see myself doing, and perhaps you've done this too sometimes, is, is that I, I see the flood and, and there's, the, there, there's, the, there's the salvation, there's the protection, but I actually run around the hole and I throw myself into the waters. I go, oh, it's no use. It just looks so good. It looks so alluring. I can't help it. I actually evade God's protection. Another image that I've had is that it's like you have a, you know, you've got your house and this group of people show up and they knock on the door and they're like, can we come in? You go, okay, sure, come on in. And they just trash your house and say all kinds of terrible things about you and then they just leave. The next day they knock on, on your door. They're like, hey, can we come in? And you're like, okay, I, I guess. You open the door, they come in, trash the house, say all kinds of terrible things about you. Day after day, they're knocking on your door. But they ask nicely. So you think, well, maybe it'll be different this time. Stop opening the door! Stop opening the door. Stop throwing yourself into the waters. And this is how. This is how you do it. It's verse 11. Verse 11 in Revelation 12. But before, I, before we talk about that, I want to say this. You can't do this on your own. You can't. I know, you know, maybe you'd like it if the preacher got up here and was like, hey, you've got it in yourselves. You just have to find that within yourself. You know, that spark in you. You've got it. You don't. That's, it, no, it's just not going to work that way. I think about um, this, uh, this junior boys basketball team I coached way back in the day in rural Alberta. And uh, there were a bunch of like short, skinny kids who had never played basketball before. And they were being coached by a guy who knew nothing about coaching basketball. I knew how to dunk, but I really didn't know anything. That doesn't help with grade seven boys who are that tall. So, uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was just not a very good coach. The only thing I was good at was doing halftime speeches. That was, about my, that was about my only strength. So I remember one game we're playing against this team. They're way bigger way stronger, way faster, way better coached. And uh, just they were, they were a hardworking team, really, really good team. And we got just obliterated in the first half. It, was, it wasn't even close. And so I gathered them together at halftime and I gave my best speech ever. I was just like, guys, they might be bigger than us. They might be stronger than us. But if we want this more, we can beat them, you know? It's about who's hungry. It's about who's thirsty. Are you guys hungry for this? You want to you get this? Do we want to win? Do we want this more than they do? And these guys are so pumped up. They're like, yeah, yeah, we want this. We put our hands in. All right, we're going to do this. Second half was way worse than the first. It was, it was an even bigger loss. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it turns out, no matter how hungry you are or how much you, you think you can do something, sometimes you, you, you can't. Uh, <laughs> but, Here's the thing. If, as the coach, I had put myself into the game, I'm actually fairly confident I could have dominated those other grade seven boys. I was, you know, athletic prime of my life. I was, I was a pretty good player. I, th I think I could have done something. I think I could have turned the tide. I think things could have been quite a bit different. This is what Jesus has done. This is, this is Christmas. This is, what, this is actually what we celebrate at Christmas, is that the coach has come into the game. He entered into the world... He put on the jersey of humanity and he, he, took, he took the load upon himself. He, he said, okay, I've, I've got this. <laughs> you guys are losing pretty bad. I've got this. And, and he took that on and he went to war <laughs> with, with Satan. 
So, so Revelation 12 verse 11 says, first of all, that, that we triumph, that they, these followers of Jesus triumph over him, over the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb. And why the Lamb? That's an Old Testament reference too. That's an Exodus reference. That in the Exodus, the last plague, all of the Israelites were to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doorframe of their homes so that when the angel of death came through the land, whenever a home was covered by the blood of, a lamb, of the lamb, that the angel would, would pass by, would pass over that home. And so it is that, that all of us stand condemned because of our sin. The dragon's right about that but that when we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, when our trust is in Jesus, death passes over us. I mean, I mean spiritual death, eternal death passes over us because we are covered by a greater strength than our own. Jesus has gone to the cross. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life. He went all the way in righteousness. He overcame the dragon. And, and so we are covered by faith, by the blood of the Lamb. And so when Satan comes at us and he accuses us and he, and he condemns us and he feeds us all these thoughts, it's like an opposing player on a basketball team saying, man, you're terrible. You miss so many shots. You turn the ball over. I don't even know if you've ever played in your life. You're not even worthy to be worthy to be on the court. And you just look at them and you say, well, that might be true, but look at the scoreboard. You lost because I'm with that guy. And that guy came into the game and he destroyed you. So you can come at me all you want, but I'm on team Jesus and he beat you. So you know what I mean? Covered by the blood of the Lamb, a greater strength than anything we have on our own, a greater strength than anything the serpent has at his disposal. Jesus defeated him, overcome him that way. We overcome him as well by a greater story. We read that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, I want to be clear on something here. We talk about testimony in our world today. We often think about it as like uh, people saying, well, I, I just got to speak my truth. You know, you got to speak your truth. And maybe there's, I don't know if there's something to that. But personally, I go, I don't really care if it's your truth or my truth. I just want the truth. I just, I just want to know what actually happened. See, in the, in the Bible, witness, testimony, is, is not something subjective that's kind of like, well, it might be or might not be. It's the faithful recounting of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what God's will for us is in Christ. You see that even at the end of this passage, where we read that these people, these, the, the woman and her offspring, are those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. There's, this is about faithfulness. It's about obedience. The holding fast to what has been given to you. Uh, Jesus says in, in Revelation 3, verse 3, to the Christians in Sardis, he says, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Hold to it. What you've received, hold to it. Second Thessalonians, Paul says something similar. He says, Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Don't deviate from it. You have your testimony of who Jesus is, what he's done, what his will is for you that's consistent with what has been passed down. Don't deviate from it. From it. See, we could probably line up each of these ways that we triumph 
with the ways of the, of the serpent to deceive. And, and so here, thinking again about false teaching in the church, and so much of it is driven by, uh, or, or, or it's, it's characterized by a deviation from what has been given to us in the, in the past. And, and so, again, to use an exa- I'm not excited about using these examples, but I, I feel like I need to, uh, to talk about, about marriage and, and, and sexuality, that you have a lot of preachers in the West who want to say to Christians, you know, it's, we, we can redefine this now. We, we, we can deviate from that because, you know, there's a lot of pressure in the world to go that way. Now, the thing is, again, that, that it, it's so different. The way that, that, that these things are understood in our world today, it's so different from what has been, been passed down to us. And it also inevitably leads churches to decline and death. Have you noticed this? The churches that go that way of going with our culture in those areas, you would think that they would be bursting at the seams because, well, because they've eliminated this, this barrier, this difficult thing. They fit in so well. You would think that those churches would be growing, but they're not. Those denominations are almost always in decline and death. And I think that's because it's, it's a stream from the serpent meant to drown, meant, meant to deceive. Or think about the way that the cross of Jesus is, is understood in, in, in more and more circles, especially in Western Christianity. That, that the death, the cross of Jesus is basically just a really good example. That Jesus showed us what it looks like to turn the other cheek. And that's the power of the cross. But this whole idea that, that the cross actually atones for sin, that, that actually the sin needed to be paid for, well, that's kind of violent and icky. We don't like that very much. So we're, we're going to let that go as the southerners say, that dog don't hunt. <laughs> because because if, if all this is, is an, an example, then nothing has actually been done with our sin and we're still in the same place. We're still without hope in the, in the world in that way. Hold fast to who Jesus is, what he's done, what his will is for you, and you will overcome the dragon's deceit. And then third, we read that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Think about the the first century world. Domitian was the emperor at the time Revelation was written. And uh, by some accounts, he he was a a persecutor of the church, vicious persecutor, hated, hated Christians, wanted to destroy this. But if you offered a pinch of incense... To the, to the Caesar and said, Caesar is Lord. Well, then you, you'd be okay. You could, do your, you could do your Jesus thing over there as long as you acknowledge that Caesar is, is Lord. And the whole, the whole world is going this way, right? This is, this is the worldview that everyone's swimming in. So just go along with that and, and you can spare your life. But if you don't, you, 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 might, you might die. You might pay for it with your life. See, from the beginning, Satan has used the fear of death as a, as a tool to pull Pull God's people off course. But you've got to hold on to this hope. You've overcome the dragon through a greater, a greater strength, a greater story. You've got to overcome him with a greater hope. The hope that comes in the resurrection of Jesus. That this world is not all there is, but that we are in the wilderness waiting for the promised land. That's where we're going. You've got to hold on to this. See, all, all of this, all of this, I think, boils down to uh, having your eyes set on Jesus. 
This is what uh, Sam Storms, whose uh, writings on Revelation have really helped me. This is how he sums it up. He says about these people in Revelation, they would rather die than yield one inch of their hearts to the world or Satan. No earthly pleasure was worth denying Jesus. No promise of peace or power was deemed of greater value than the value of remaining steadfast. They had refused to let anything in life get a grip on their hearts in such a way that it might diminish their devotion to Jesus. And here's the big one. Here's the home run. Don't you see that Satan has absolutely no chance of winning when he confronts a heart like that? Simple unqualified devotion to Jesus. That's why even in their death, they overcame him. Satan only wins when we love our lives more than we love God. In the end, this is how you overcome. This is what it boils down to you. Are your eyes set on Jesus? He's the one who overcame the dragon and you overcome when your eyes are set on him. I, I have a bit of a reputation in my own family and perhaps in our church as well of being just a little bit grinchy when it comes to Christmas. You know, not, not being all in on some of the sentimental, mushy stuff. But I will say, I am... It was like, it's funny, last week I made that comment about Silent Night. Remember, do you remember this? I was like, there's a dragon there! It's not a Silent Night! And then, uh, then there was like this community group of, of seniors and they were like, Craig, we want you to listen to this. And they put on like some like... YouTube video of, of Holy Night, and they were like, how can you not love this? I'm like, it's fine. It's good, guys. Christmas music is great. It's no problem at all. But they felt like they really needed to, they needed to win me over through a tinny YouTube video. Anyways, um, so, so I really do love the Christmas comes when, when it does. You know, you're in December, and the days are getting darker and shorter and colder. And sometimes in Vancouver, you have these, like, just horrible weather days, right? Like, you have these days where the, the sky is like this wet blanket, and uh, it's just like this rain-snow-slush combo. And it's like the whole world is just like gray mush. You know, what, you know those days? Those are days when my kids learn the meaning of sarcasm. And I'm like, oh, kids, it's such a wonderful day outside, isn't it? It's like not a good thing to use with kids. Sorry, they don't get it. They're like, really, Dad? You're weird. Um, but anyways, those days, you, you, get, you get these days in December, but I think for a lot of us, it's like, okay, well, we've got, we've got Christmas to look forward to. You know, at least, at least there's that. January gets pretty tough, but at least you get through the shortest day of the year, and there, there's Christmas. You've got your eyes set on the birth of Jesus. That, that helps you. See, the world might feel like it grows dark and that it grows cold. And yet, if our eyes are set on Jesus and our eyes are set on what lies ahead, then we can make it. We can endure because our victory is not in our circumstances, but in Jesus. In Revelation 12, right before that that verse about the victory, John says that he heard a voice saying, now have come. They have come, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. That has come. At Christmas, the kingdom of God has come into our world. The dragon has been hurled down. So my friends, this Christmas, and all the distractions and everything, keep your eyes set on Jesus. Carry on the victory that Jesus already 
won at Christmas through his life, death, and resurrection. Carry on that battle. Win that victory. Put your hope, your strength, your truth in him, and you will know that victory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome. We thank you that in you the kingdom of God has broken into this world, into the darkness. The light has shone. In a world where, where we are, are held in the, in the fear of death, held in slavery to the fear of death, you have overcome. You have been raised to life. You overcame death. In a world where we are held in bondage to sin, you were righteous to the end and you have broken the power of the serpent. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and I pray that you would give them wisdom to discern the, 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 the streams that come from the serpent, the floods that come from the serpent. I pray you'd give them wisdom and I pray you'd give them strength, Lord, to stand in your victory, not to try to overcome it on their own, but to stand in your truth and your hope and, and your strength. Lord, because we know we will be victorious. We know that in a, in a dark world, we will shine like stars if we hold fast to you, if we are faithful to you. Lord, that we will win these victories over, over the dragon, just like you did. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this Christmas. Give them that victory. Give them that strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.